Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pray that we would not be like the readers of this letter back 2,000 years ago that we heard about last week who were lazy uh, and not willing to apply their minds to your word, instead to help us to work hard at understanding it, help us not to be people who are only able to drink spiritual milk, but instead help us to chew uh, on this solid food together tonight. So we pray that you'll help us to understand it, but more than that, we pray that you'll help us to take it to heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When uh, Sam was born, sorry Sam, but uh, when Sam was born, I won't go into details, but it was a complicated arrival for, uh, for baby Sam, uh, and at the end of it, when he was safely born, one of the doctors there said to us, well, what are you going to name him? Uh, what are you going to call him? Now, you've got to understand, this was RPA Hospital in Newtown, so uh, 50% of the people having babies there, I would say, are more college students who like naming their children after obscure Old Testament prophets. And 50% are people who live in Newtown. So you can put that together with the names they call their children, you know, names that make up spelling and all that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, so when I said, we're thinking of Samuel, uh, the doctor said, oh, at last, a normal name. <laughs> a normal name. Uh, so as I say, he was just excited to have helped deliver a baby with a normal name like Sam. Uh, well, even with all the names he would have heard, I'd be willing to bet he never got a Melchizedek. He never got a Melchizedek. For some reason, Melchizedek's name has not caught on. Uh, I have never baptised a Melchizedek here at church. Uh, even amongst our Bible college students, I haven't baptised a Melchizedek. So there you go. Maybe some of you can take that as a challenge. But besides the fact that no one would ever be able to spell that name, part of that is that Melchizedek is actually quite a minor character in your Old Testament. Uh, he comes up in one obscure story in Genesis, and we read it before, and I purposely cut the reading to just the part about Melchizedek, so you could see just how short the section was that, uh, that was read for us before from Genesis. Then he gets a passing uh, mention in one verse in Psalm 110, and then that's it, which is why it's all a bit surprising that Hebrews makes such a big deal of him. So a couple of times already in the chapters we've looked at over the last few weeks, there's just been these teasers, these, these throwaway lines, Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, but now at last, in this chapter, Big Mel, as I call him, he gets the full chapter. Uh, now I just want to say as we start, some of the arguments in this chapter are a little bit obscure uh, and at parts hard to follow, uh, so we'll need to switch our brains on like I prayed for us at the start. But even so, I think the end message is really simple, and it all leads to verse 25. So open your Bibles there, verse 25, it says, Therefore he, that is Jesus, is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. And we'll think about more about this when we get to the end, but this is the takeaway point of this chapter, Jesus is always able to save you. See the way it repeats the word always there? He is always able to save you because Jesus lives forever and he is always able to intercede on your behalf. As I say, it's that word always that's so important. Nothing can stop Jesus saving us. So even if you get a, a little bit bogged down in uh, Melchizedek in this chapter, remember this is the point, verse 25. That's the wonderful truth that this is all aiming at. Uh, so before we get to meeting Melchizedek, I want us to go back a bit. Remember, what is the issue in the book of Hebrews? We've been seeing for the last few weeks. Why is this book written? These people were thinking about giving up on Jesus. 
Uh, so the book is to encourage us to stick with Jesus. And this is part of that argument. They were thinking about giving up on Jesus to go back to Old Testament religion. So the religion of priests, the religion of animal sacrifices, the religion of the temple in Jerusalem. And the argument has been, why would you turn back to Old Testament religion? Why would you go back to an ordinary, sinful human priest when you have the greatest priest of all in Jesus, when you have the true mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus? But that raised an issue for any Jew, which was these first readers, which was, how can Jesus be the great high priest when he doesn't come from the right family. Now, we don't, we don't think that way. That's not the question we ask when we're reading this. But just think about this. I said we have to have our brains on tonight. There were three great types of leaders in the Old Testament. Just think for a moment. What were the three great types of leaders in the Old Testament? There was the king, there was the prophet, and there was the priest. They were the three different types of leaders God provided for his people all through the Old Testament. And the New Testament says Jesus is the final, perfect fulfillment of each of those three roles. So every king in the Old Testament, every prophet in the Old Testament, every priest was pointing us forward to the better model, the perfect model, which is Jesus. Now the first two, it's actually quite easy to see how Jesus fulfills those roles, how he's the perfect king and how he's the perfect prophet. The king was from the tribe of Judah. The king had to be descended from King David. Well, that is Jesus. No one disputes that. So when you read the Christmas stories every year, when you read the Gospels, it makes the big point, shows the whole genealogy to show you Jesus is descended from the tribe of Judah. He's descended from David. So Jesus is our king, our Messiah, our Christ, if you like. The prophets, well, it didn't matter who their father was. They came from anywhere. The key was that they were raised up by God to speak his word. Well, again, the Gospels made it very clear, Jesus is the word of God. Even Jesus' enemies recognise he teaches with authority. Uh, so Jesus is God's true and final prophet. But the priests, well, from the time of Moses, from the moment God gave his people the law, the priests had to be descended from Aaron, Moses' brother. And that meant they had to come from the tribe of Levi. The law just required that. If you were from any other tribe, you couldn't be a priest. You had to be from that one tribe. So their argument would be, well, you can't have your cake and eat it too about Jesus. You can't be both from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of Levi. You can't be descended both from David and from Aaron. So how can Jesus be our great high priest? And that is where... Thanks for sticking with me with that. That's where Big Mel comes in. Because the argument is, well, actually Jesus is your priest, but he's not from the order of Levi, he's not from the order of Aaron. Jesus is a different sort of priest, a priest from the order of Melchizedek. And this is the key point. That's what actually makes him a better priest for us. So with that in mind, let's come and get into it. Let's meet our man Melchizedek. So meeting Melchizedek. So the only place we meet this guy is in that obscure story we read before in Genesis chapter 14 that goes all the way back to Abraham. So this is before Moses. This is before the law. This is before the priests of Israel. In fact, Abraham's name was still Abram at this point. That's how far back it is. He hasn't even had his name changed yet. Uh, and what happened is Abraham's family get caught up in a local political power play. So basically every city in that time had a king. 
King was probably too big a title for them. They were more like warlords. They were just sort of the bloke in charge at the time. Uh, And so four invading kings come in and they attack the five local kings of the area where Abraham is living. And because Abraham's nephew Lot was living in the city of Sodom, which becomes famous for, for worse things later on, he was captured with all his family and all his possessions and taken off. And so Abraham goes on a rescue mission. You know those Liam Neeson movies? You know how every Liam Neeson movie is exactly the same? The other one, Taken, where it's his daughter, and then there's Taken 2, where I think it's probably his wife, and then there's Taken on a train and Taken on a plane. And yet, Every time he has to rescue his, his kidnapped family, well, Abraham is Liam Neeson in this story. And he goes off and he defeats these four marauding kings. He rescues Lot, his nephew, all his family, brings them back and brings back all the plunder. And then as he's coming back, he meets this guy, Melchizedek. And we're told Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, that is a godly king. He knows the one true God. And he's also, it says, the king of Salem, which is probably Jerusalem, before it was called Jerusalem, but it also means peace. And so Melchizedek is a king of righteousness and peace. Does that sound familiar? He's a king of righteousness and peace. More than that, we're told, Melchizedek was also a priest of the Most High God. Now, I find this really interesting. Before Moses, before Israel became a nation, before God gave the law, all of that sort of thing, God wasn't silent. He had priests scattered around the place to represent him to people. Uh, And so Jethro is another priest you meet if you read the book of Exodus a little bit after this. And so this was a priest of God before God set up the system of priests, if you like, before the priests of Levi in the temple. And so this priest of God comes out and he blesses Abraham. And Abraham offers him a tithe of all his plunder. He gives him a tenth of all that he had basically taken off those kings he'd gone and attacked. And that's the end of the story in the Old Testament. But the thing about the story that Hebrews picks up is just how obscure this Melchizedek was. And so that's the point of verse 3. So come with me now. We're in Hebrews chapter 7 now. Come to verse 3. And he says, He is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, remains a priest forever. Now, I don't think it's saying that Melchizedek actually had no parents. And I don't think it's saying he wasn't born and he didn't die. People come with all sorts of theories that maybe Melchizedek is an angel uh, and that's why he just sort of comes from nowhere. Other people say, well, maybe actually this is God the Son appearing before God the Son came as Jesus. It's what we call a Christophany, uh, an appearance of the Christ. I think all of that is just sort of unhelpful speculation. We just don't know. The point here is that in the Bible story, he comes from nowhere. He wasn't a priest because his dad was a priest. He's not a priest because of his lineage. He was just appointed by God. And he didn't then hand over his priesthood to someone else. If you went back in in 50 years' time, he didn't find the next priest of Salem, who's the son of Melchizedek. It either went with him when he died, or maybe he got taken up to heaven, like Enoch and Elijah in other parts of the Old Testament. And so the point here is, this is the sort of priest that Jesus is. He's a Melchizedek-like priest. He's not a priest 
because his dad was the priest. He is a king because his dad was a king. He's from the tribe of Judah, descended from David. But Jesus is not a priest because he's descended from Aaron or from Levi. He's a priest like Melchizedek, a priest forever, a priest as long as he lives. And so if you want to understand Jesus, if you want a prototype for understanding what it means that Jesus is your priest, don't go back so much and look at the priests in the temple. Look at Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, who is also the great mediator between God and man. And so the rest of the passage is then showing why Melchizedek, and then more importantly, Jesus, is a greater priest, which is why he's the priest we need. So come with me to the next heading, why Melchizedek is greater. This is verses 4 to 10. Now this whole section can get a bit convoluted, so I'm going to draw out the key points. Look with me from verse 4. He says, Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command, according to the law, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected tenths from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. So what's this all about? Under the Old Testament law, every Israelite had to give, it was required, had to give a tithe, a tenth of everything they earned, to support the priests. And that was right and that was good, but it was an obligation. It was required by the law. But here is Abraham, the father of Israel, the one who everyone else was descended from, the man who received the promises of God. Here, the great father Abraham voluntarily pays his tithe to this other priest, who he's not obligated to do it to. He's not required to do it but he just does it. And in fact, you could say, as it does down at verses 9 and 10, if you go down there, that because the Levites are descended from Abraham, he was actually paying it on behalf of all of Israel, everyone who was to come. And so the point is, this priest is greater than all these other priests, greater even than Abraham, because they pay tribute to him. He doesn't pay tribute to them. They pay tribute to him. And so verse 7 then is the key there. Look there. It says, without a doubt, The inferior is blessed by the superior. And we know that's true, don't we? I mean, whether you're a Republican or a monarchist or whatever, a don't careist, whatever, the queen does not seek the blessing of the commoner. The commoner goes to the queen to seek the blessing. The parent doesn't seek the blessing of the child, at least not a a good parent doesn't. you, You see, the lesser person seeks the blessing of the greater person, the less powerful person seeks the blessing of the more powerful person. It's a convoluted argument and it's foreign to our way of thinking, but it's making the point, this type of priest, a Melchizedek-like priest, is greater than Abraham, who is the greatest of all Israel. And so he is greater than any priests of Israel. So surely you would rather go with a priest from the order of Melchizedek than an Old Testament priest. But now we leave our man behind, because in the end, who really cares about him? Now we switch into why the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the priest who is like Melchizedek, is greater. So this is why Jesus is greater, our next heading. This is verses 11 to 28. I'm going to let you work through these verses more closely in your gospel teams, if you haven't already, Uh, but it really is just like a list of why Jesus is greater than the Old Testament priests. And I'm just going to pull out the key points. So I've got three. First of all, Jesus is greater, A, because he brings perfection. 
So look with me at verse 11. It says, If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? Now, what's it saying? It's saying the Levites are part of the Old Testament law, but the law did not make us perfect. In fact, what it actually did was it showed us our sin. That's what the Old Testament law does. When someone reads the Ten Commandments, if you ask someone, hey, you've read the Ten Commandments, what do you think about that? And they say, yeah, I think I keep the Ten Commandments. They are deluded. No one can keep the Ten Commandments. You read the Ten Commandments, go home and do it tonight. You read it. What it actually makes you do is you go, oh, I can't do that. I've never done that. I've never even got a day being able to keep all the Ten Commandments, especially not when I look at my heart and my mind as well as my actions. You see, what the Old Testament law does is show us our failings. It shows us how we fall short. So it did not bring us perfection. And even the sacrifices those priests made under the Old Testament law, they couldn't wash us clean once and for all. No blood of a goat could actually wash away my sin. No, no blood of a sheep could wash away my sin. Only Jesus' sacrifice for sins on the cross brings perfection. Only Jesus' sacrifice brings true cleansing, true forgiveness. So Jesus is greater because he actually brings perfection. Second thing it says, and Jesus is greater, B, because he is appointed by God himself. See, they just became priests because their dad was the priest. Jesus was declared by God to be the priest we need. So look at verse 15. It says, and this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal command concerning physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. See, Jesus doesn't get this job just because his dad had the job. Jesus is there because of who he is and especially his perfect life, and then his death and resurrection. That is why God declared him to be our priest forever. And that leads to the last thing I'll point out. There's so much more in these verses, but the last I'll point out, Jesus is greater, thirdly, because he is perfect and sinless. Look at verse 26. It says, For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all, when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. I don't think I need to overly expand on that. The point is, we did not need another sinful man in a long line of sinful men to try to intercede for God on our behalf. We, we didn't need that. We needed something new. We needed a different type of priest. We needed a new order of priest. We needed a priest who was perfect, yet understands us. The priest who truly opens up the way to God once and for all, and that priest is Jesus. Well, I hope you've struck with me through that and seen the significance of all that. As I said, we don't want to be like the lazy hearers we heard about last week. Uh, we want to be people who grapple with God's Word. We don't want to be baby Christians who only drink milk. We want to chew on the meaty, solid food of God's Word. Uh, and I want to say to you, if you're struggling with Hebrews, if you're sitting there going, I don't know, what the, I don't get all this. If you're struggling with it, that is okay. But it should say to you, I need to get to know my Bible better. 
It should say, I need to grapple more with the Scriptures. I don't want to be a baby Christian. I want to learn to chew on the serious doctrine of God's Word, on the meat. Uh, you might say, I, I, I don't know my Old Testament well enough, so all this stuff in Hebrews seems foreign to me. We'll come and do the intro to the Bible course when we do it later in the year and learn the whole story of the Old Testament. Get into reading your Bible more. But just in case it was too meaty tonight, remember I said, it all points to this wonderful, simple truth in verse 25. So come there now. And the heading I've got is, Jesus intercedes for us forever. So look with me again. It says, therefore, he, Jesus, is always able to save those who come to God through him. This is so important. Jesus did not come as your guidance counsellor. Guidance counsellors are good if that's how you work or you see one, that's fine. But that's not what he came for. He did not come as your psychologist. He did not come as your self-help guru. He did not come to help you live a better life. Jesus did not come for any of those reasons. He came to be your priest forever because that is what you need and it's what I need. See, as helpful as any of those other things are, what we need is a priest who stands between us and the Father so that we can find salvation. We need a priest to make the sacrifice, to pay for our sins once and for all. And Jesus is that priest. And if you have Jesus as your high priest, this salvation is available for all time. See the repeated, I've said it so many times, the repeated always in these verses. Our salvation, it said, is guaranteed forever. How could it not be when our priest has offered himself for our sins once and for all? How could it not be when he stands there forever arguing our case before our Heavenly Father? At this point, I just want to make a clarification. Don't make a mistake here. I hear too many Christians act like Jesus is the nice one and God the Father's the mean one. That's not what it's saying. It's not as though Jesus the priest loves us and God the Father is angry. Uh, some people hear it saying that. No, God the Father sends Jesus to be our priest. It's his idea and God loves us infinitely. And we see that by the way he sends Jesus to be our forever priest. I just make that clarification. But the point here is, because Jesus is our great high priest, our salvation is guaranteed forever. But hear this, your salvation is guaranteed as long as we keep coming before God through Jesus. If you try to come before God trusting in your own righteousness, there is no salvation for you. If you try and come before God the Father and say, I think I'm pretty good, I think I'm good enough for you. I think I've done enough good things to earn your, your respect and your salvation. You will be rejected and judged. You see, it's only as we keep coming before God, not trusting in our own strength, not trusting in our own goodness, but instead coming through Jesus, that is when our salvation is totally secure, while we come through Jesus. But now I want to finish with the last part of verse 25. Look there. It says, Therefore... He is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Sometimes we can think of Jesus as still dead on the cross. That's why we don't have crucifixes in our church. You know what a crucifix is? You know where it's got the dead Jesus on the cross? We don't have that. You shouldn't ever see that in a Protestant church, in a Bible-believing church because Jesus is not still on the cross. He's risen. 
and he lives to intercede for us. You see, Jesus is not dead, he is alive. And he is working on your behalf. It's wonderful when someone tells you they're praying for you, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, after church tonight, you might share something with someone, they'll say, I'm pray, I'll pray for you this week, and that is wonderful. How much more wonderful is it that Jesus is praying for you? Jesus is praying for you. That's what this means. You see, when I pray for you, or when you pray for me, I don't always know what's best to ask for, and you don't always know what's best to ask for me. Jesus knows what is best for you. And so Jesus is always, forever, putting forward to the Father what is best for you and what is best for me. And Jesus' prayers are always answered because he prays perfectly on the basis of his perfect sacrifice. If you want to understand this, uh, look at what Jesus did and what he prayed for the disciples when he was here on earth. So look at Luke chapter 22, verse 32, it's on the screen. He says, he's praying for Peter, he says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, that is what Jesus is praying for you right now, that your faith may not fail. Or in John 17, verse 11, God prays to the Father, Jesus prays to the Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so they may be one as we are one. That's what Jesus is praying for you now, that you will be protected so you keep trusting Jesus and so that we remain unified in the faith. Or John 17, verse 15, he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, that gives you an insight into what it means here in Hebrews when it says, Jesus is forever, always interceding on your behalf. He is in the heavens praying for your strength of faith, praying for our unity, praying for our protection against the trials and struggles of this world. This is all part of that wonderful assurance we have if we come to God through Jesus. Sadly, I think many Christians have what I call an impersonal faith in Jesus. We believe in the facts of the gospel. We believe that Jesus died for our sins. We believe that he did rise from the dead 2,000 years ago and he defeated death. And that is true and that is wonderful and that is vital and that is important. This passage reminds us our faith is in a living saviour. You don't just trust in what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago. You trust in the real and living saviour who stands there in the heavens interceding on your behalf. Our faith is in a true high priest who lives now to intercede for us. And that is why we can approach our Heavenly Father through our living high priest, Jesus, every day with total assurance and total confidence that He is giving us the help and the strength we need to persevere in our faith. I think that is the most wonderful comfort. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus is not like the priests of the Old Testament system, that instead he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. We thank you that he lives forever, always standing to intercede on our behalf. And we thank you that he has offered the one true sacrifice once for all to pay the price for our sins so that we can approach you with total confidence. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.